All right, good morning, 11 o'clock. All right. Uh, let me get a show of hands of how many of you are the oldest child in your family. A good number, more than I expected. Actually, let me get a clap of your hands and see how, much, how many of you are the oldest, right? Okay. That sounds respectable and restrained, just like a firstborn child. Uh, I am a firstborn child. How many of you, uh, let me hear by the clap of your hands, are the youngest in the family? <laughs> Wild and unrestrained like the youngest child, right? Uh, I'd ask about the middle child, but no one's cared about you growing up all your life. <laughs> so I'm just going to continue that trend and forget you. <laughs> Come on, you're an adult, get over it, right? I have a younger brother named Sam, um, and, and uh, uh, he's like, f <laughs> you could tell who the youngest sibling is in, 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 from that series of pictures, uh, and when we were little, no matter how much I beat up on him, and I did that a lot, he was five years younger than me, and no matter how much I used him and abused him, right, come on, firstborn siblings, we love to do that, right, um, he always wanted to tag along wherever I went. And so this was especially uh, embarrassing when I was like 16 and I wanted to be cool and go to the mall with my friends and here was my little bratty 11-year-old brother. Hey, can I go with you? No, stay home. You know, you can't come with me. Mom, Dad, son, take Sam with you. Oh, my goodness, right? He just wanted to go wherever I went. Worse than that, though, he always wanted to do whatever I did, right? So if, if I wanted like uh, Frosted Flakes or breakfast, uh, guess what he wanted for breakfast? If I wanted to play Miss Pac-Man, guess what he wanted to do? Uh, if I wanted to watch like MacGyver or something on TV, guess what he wanted? He like wanted to do everything I did. And I think this might partly explain why sometimes um, my, my uh, oldest daughter, Elsa, uh, my, my, young, my youngest son, always has this habit of wanting to do everything that her, his older sister does. And so uh, when, if we're ever at a restaurant, we're like, hey, Micah, what are you going to order? He'll always say, I don't know. I got to wait to see what Elsa orders. Right? And I, and I project all this firstborn frustration. And I'm like, Micah, just make your own mind up. Right? Why do you have to do what she does? Yeah, hive issues. <laughs> so growing up as a kid, my brother would always imitate me. Uh, and, and out of frustration, uh, oftentimes, I would turn around and say, Sam, would you stop copying everything I do and everything I say? And sometimes it got so bad like we would fight in front of my parents. Well, not fight, I would just beat them up. And then my, and then, and then my parents would come, hey, what's, what's going on here? I said, Sam just like keeps bothering me. And uh, he, my brother would start crying. I just want to be with my song. And, you know, and I'm like, look, just you stop copying. He copies everything I see and do. And my dad once explained to me, song, look, the reason why he does that is he looks up to you. And he said this, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, phrase that I think everyone's familiar with. He said, imitation is the sincerest form of, what? Flattery. 
Well, that, that didn't help me any, right? Uh, I, I didn't want to be flattered by my brother, and uh, he kept imitating me, and and, uh, and after that, he, he was so happy. He felt like he was like vindicated. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's flattery and all that kind of, and I said, you know, Sam, look, at one point of just great frustration, I turned to him and said, look, imitation may be the sincerest form of flattery, but you lack my personality, my talent, my skills. And so just stop it before you hurt yourself. Well, he went off crying by himself and, uh, if we lived down in the South, I would have said, well, bless your heart, right? So, but, but I share this story of my brother Sam, uh, not to show you that I'm a mean brother, but Sam is a picture of what discipleship looked like in the first century, right? Where your goal, your entire goal was to imitate your rabbi. We talked about a lot of this last week, but you would imitate his manners, his tone of voice, his movements. You would follow, when he walked on the dusty roads of Israel, you would literally step into his footprints and there would be a saying, right? You would follow so so closely to him. uh, People would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you walk so closely behind him that as he walks, the dust that kicks up from his sandals would cover and cling onto you. Um, Well, 2,000 years later, that call, the invitation of Jesus to follow him has not changed. It it is, follow me, and we talked about this last week, be my apprentice, study under me. Really, he's saying, imitate me, be like me, which is very different because we often think in the American church, the invitation of Jesus is this, believe the right things about God, Jesus, and the Bible so that uh, you could go to heaven when you die. But Jesus' invitation is so much more than that. And and so we talked a lot about that last week. Today, we want to look at another aspect of discipleship where Jesus says, look, follow me, imitate me in this. Uh, And so if you have your Bibles, uh, and if you would turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 16 to 20, uh, if you have your Bibles in front of your chairs, that's on page 836. And follow along as we read this together. This is the same passage we looked at last week. Last week, we kind of looked through this through the historical context. Today, we want to kind of do more of a, um, uh, I I don't know what to call it, but uh, uh, Mark chapter 1, starting from verse 16. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, meaning Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Another aspect that that we see here is uh, that we cannot deny, and we see this not only in this passage, but all through the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, is following Jesus always happens in community, right? Uh, If you notice, uh, in verse 16, Jesus calls Simon and his brother, Andrew. And, And then in verse 19, he calls James and his brother, John. It is not an accident, in my opinion, that Jesus calls two set of brothers to form the nucleus of the church. 
And here's why. Because the way Jesus understands the church, we see a picture of this a couple of chapters later in Mark, Mark chapter 3. This is a fascinating story. Uh, follow along as I read this. And then Jesus' mother, Mary, and brothers arrived. Uh, Mary had other sons after Jesus was born. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. This was, he, he knew this was just more of a teaching moment. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, his disciples, and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so to Jesus, the church is a family consisting of brothers and sisters and mothers. Notice who is not on the list, by the way. Fathers. Why? Because God is our father, and in Jesus we have all been adopted into God's family. Now, all that to say simply this, to make this point. You cannot follow Jesus alone. You cannot do it by yourself. You cannot grow as a disciple of Jesus unless you are in community. Right? At a bare minimum, if you follow Jesus by yourself, it, it will stun your growth in a very debilitating way. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I hear or think about this statement, you cannot follow Jesus alone, this rubs me against the grain. I don't like it because as an American, I worship at the altar of individualism, right? It's just me and Jesus, leave me alone. It's none of your business, right? And that is so hardwired into my DNA, into who I am because of the American worldview, which is uh, hands down the most hyper-individualistic worldview in human history. And so by default, we view our faith primarily as a private individual experience rather than something that we do as a community or as a collective whole. But that, that according to Jesus, is, is not following the ways of Jesus. Right? Jesus is always in community. He was either in, um, in solitude, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, or he was always in community. Right? Uh, what does that mean for us? It means that if you want to follow Jesus, and not just believe in him, but you actually want to follow him, apprentice him, imitate him. You have to come out of your shell and you have to move through life together with other followers of Jesus. Right? And so when Jesus talks about the church in the New Testament, he is telling us what God intends to do in human history. And what God desires to do in us cannot happen in or through us uh, as long as we are doing it by ourselves, it can only happen as we move through life, live life together, right? And so what I want to do is, since we spent last week kind of diving into this passage in Mark chapter 1, I want to use that as a springboard to look at a different passage, because again, the New Testament is filled with just this whole idea of, of the church and the body of Christ and being together with, with one another, so uh, we're going to start off in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to read a few verses in this passage. And this passage is rich with, um, with so much uh, of, uh, of what we can learn about what it means to follow Jesus together. So um, the, we're gonna, Paul, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, Gentiles are people who are non-Jews, so that's most of us are Gentiles, are heirs, what's the word? 
Let's say that together. Uh, we, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares in the promise in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the theme of together in there? Right? And not only that, but Paul uses this, meta- uses this metaphor of being one body. And that metaphor is simply brilliant that we are, as the church, are the body of Christ. Um, uh, any physicians or med students or biology majors here, how many cells does your body have? Anybody? 50 what? 50 trillion. Oh my goodness. You are right, right? Anywhere from 15, no, 15, she's married to a doctor. (laughs) Anywhere from 15 to 70 trillion cells in your body. And I don't know about you, but I am grateful that most of the cells in my body have chosen to cooperate and work together. Now, what would happen if some of my cells decide to do their own thing? to kind of go in in a different direction or find their own (laughs) self-expression. What would happen to my body? That's called disease or cancer, right? And yet our bodies are this beautiful picture of trillions and trillions of cells moving and working together to create an identity. And and this is why God calls us the body of Christ, because we are millions and millions, trillions of cells working, living together and not in isolation from one another. And that is the picture that Jesus says, this is what my people are supposed to be and, and do. Right? And so if you are a part of the church, uh, we have a mission that only the church can accomplish in the world. And you play a unique role in the church in fulfilling that calling. And so he, Paul talks about being together and being one body. Later on in verse 10, he says this, this, his intent, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Right, it was seven years ago that we started this endeavor called Grace Ann Arbor. And, and at that time, I had already found myself uh, having a particular aversion to the word church. Maybe like some of you, you've had bad experiences. Uh, um, you know, I, I don't know if you noticed this, and, and this isn't the reason why, but uh, Gracie and Arbor doesn't have the word church in it, right? Uh, it's, it's intentional, by the way. We didn't forget about it or run out of room on our business card or something and just forgot to call ourselves a church. No, um, but for me, part of, part of it is like my background growing up, even though I grew up in church, As a pastor's kid, I came to associate the word church with so many things I wish I never experienced, right? And so I find myself continually in this kind of ironic, uncomfortable relationship with the world in which I live, breathe, and work in, right? And church is kind of like a four-letter word in our culture in in this day and age, right? Um, And and I encounter that uh, on a regular basis here. So often that when I talk to people, when we first moved to Ann Arbor, and people, I'd engage in conversation with my neighbors and people at random places, they would always ask me, after like 15 minutes of great conversation, so what do you do? And I would often kind of naively say, well, I'm a pastor. I I, should have just said, like, I'm a crack dealer. Because they looked at me and just all conversation ended. Now, uh, I've tried to nuance it. It's not any better. But uh, now people ask me, they sometimes even ask my wife, so what does your husband do? Well, 
he works at a church, which is also sure to end any kind of conversation. And sometimes, even as a pastor, I think, man, I wish there was another word that Jesus would have used instead of church, because church is filled with so much baggage, that word is. And yet, Paul says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Right? And I think, man, only if Jesus would have said, you know, uh, on this rock, I will build my community. Right? I mean, that, that's a better word. Or, or even, on this rock, I will build my people. I mean, because the church is the people. We talk about that. Or if Jesus wanted to be, like, ahead of his times and hipster, he could have said, I will build my, uh, on this rock, I will build my tribe or something. Right? Why does he have to use the word church? But I realize that no matter what Jesus would have called this assembly of people, we would have ruined the word anyways, right? And because when Jesus said, I will build my church, everyone who heard that word would have imagined something revolutionary, something hopeful, something redemptive, because they lived in a world in the first century, a world full of violence. They lived in a world full of poverty and injustice and suffering, much like today, in a world where none of these things should happen, and the church was a force for good in the world. And so part of the reason why, when we started Grace Ann Arbor, we we called it just simply Grace Ann Arbor, because first of all, grace is simply God's unearned favor, undeserved favor that we receive, and he pours down into us. But it doesn't end with us. God pours it down upon us, but then it flows out of us and it impacts our neighbors, our city, and our world. And we, we put the name of the city right in there because we never want to forget the ultimate goal and purpose of God's grace is not for us simply. It is for, for those, we are simply a means or a vessel through which God's grace will be poured out to the entire world. But Jesus uses, uh, Paul and Jesus uses the word church to talk about who we are. And then Paul describes this incredible promise in verse 14 to 19 uh, that I think applies to, to us. He says this, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Right? I mean, this is an incredible promise, but one of the challenges for us as we hear these words is that we often read and listen and hear these words as if, uh, and we've been taught this, that these are words from God being spoken to me as an individual. And so we think, oh man, this is a great promise for me. Yes, I want to be rooted and established in his love. Yes, this is an invitation to be strengthened in the power of the Holy Spirit in my inner being. And and sometimes we often wonder, or at least I do, how come I don't experience the fullness of God, what Paul calls the fullness of God, in my life? And part of the problem is that these words were not written uh, to a guy named Ephesus. 
It was written to a church in Ephesus. It was written to a community of people, not to an individual person. It's not written to me as a person. It's written to us as a church. And until we understand that the life God intends for us is is never ever to be lived by ourselves, you will never experience the fullness of God that he wants to give us. In fact, all the uh, um, use here to strengthen you uh, so that I pray that you is, is actually in the Greek in plural. But we want God to pour out his spirit onto me. We want uh, his favor and his promises fulfilled in my life. But that is impossible because if everything you need is not, if everything I need is not poured into me, then it compels me to really need you. I need you to experience the fullness of God in my life, right? And and the reality is you are too small of a vehicle for God to pour out all of his glorious riches into. You cannot contain all of his glorious riches by by yourself. So he pours out his glorious riches to all of us. So we not only need God, but we need one another. You ever hear people say, I hear people say this to me, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And I'll often ask, well, what do you mean by that? And they'll say, well, you know, I'm not into the whole church thing. Right? Uh, and usually if you keep pressing, what, when somebody says, I, I, I don't do church, what they're really saying is, I don't do people. Um, I, I'd, you know, it's a lot easier to live life by myself. It's much simpler that way, and it's true, right? Uh, we want to live life on our own. In fact, you may have heard this phrase. It's a common African proverb. If you want to go fast, travel alone. But if you want to go far, travel together. This past week, uh, the, the pastors, all of us, Nate, uh, Brian, Matt, myself, John from Canton, Ryan from Cultivate, we all went on a, a we, we have a regular retreat a few times a year, a day and a half where we just get away. We talk about church, we work, uh, and, and then, uh, you know, we, we're, we're like in the middle of nowhere, uh, on this retreat, and, and after a full day of work, uh, finally, in the rest of the evening, uh, Nate called it in, the, in his email, the three Bs, right? We, we have uh, barbecue, uh, beer, um, and a couple of us couldn't remember the third B. Uh, one person was like, uh, babes? But that doesn't sound right. Uh, buddies, right? <laughs> the three Bs, where we got together. And you know what? After we did this, all this work together, uh, it, it, we just spent the entire evening. Just, uh, we started a fire, looking over a small pond or a lake. We went canoeing together, just building relationships with one another. You know, I'll say this. In the past, when we've gone to these retreats, there have been moments where we have felt like, you know what? We are simply way too busy to afford this time away to be together. And yet every time we go away, it proves to be so invaluable. When we came back, uh, Nate asked me, hey, what'd you think about the retreat? You know, did we get done what we wanted to accomplish? And I said, you know what? It would have been a lot easier if, you know, I or just a couple of us just decided how we were going to do discipleship in the church, right? That would have been a lot easier, a lot faster. We would have been done in like two hours instead of like a day and a half. But doing it together was so worth it. 
Right? Not, not only, and not, not only does that time help us as individuals, as human beings, as pastors, but it also helps us as a church. And I love being a part of a community where my strengths and gifts can contribute in a small way to the greater whole. And yet, a, a community where my weaknesses and limitations and shortcomings do not destroy the opportunity for us to be Christ's presence in the world because other people have my back. They are strong where I am weak and we go together. We walk together in all that we do. For me, I find also community in my community group, right? 10, 15 people, other couples, kids, uh, families, Right? Are they my best friends? No, but they are my friends. They're people I know I could call on when disaster strikes in my life. So let me just say this. I know for some of you, and I'm not saying this to try to guilt or anything, but if you are not in a community group, right? if, you're, if all you do is just come on Sundays, sing a few songs, listen to sermon, go back to your life, your busy life, and just live your own life, you are missing out. Yes, it is hard. It, it is a discipline. And yes, you know, it's messy. But man, you are so missing out. Jesus came not so we can live in isolated spirituality, but he came so we could struggle together in, in our brokenness and in our separation to come together and create the kind of community that this world needs. And so even if you are, how many of you are like the super independent, self-sufficient type? How many of you? Three of you, okay, more of you, right? right? I mean, I so am. And even if you are the most gifted, most talented, most wealthy and intelligent person in this room, is there anybody here? All right, one person, right? One person that, that's really honest. The rest of you are like, no, no, that's not me. But inside you're going, yeah, of course it's me, right? Um, you, you really need other people. You especially need other people. You know why? Because you end up creating this false narrative about yourself inside your own head, right? You are awesome when you're by yourself, aren't you? But when other people break into the world that you live in, that myth about yourself starts to break apart. And the reality is people are a, a mess. I want to be more specific. You are a mess and I am a mess, but we hide it so, so well. We want to pretend like we don't need, we need each other, right? Just me and Jesus, that's good enough, or if you're agnostic, well, just me, right? I don't need God, but here's a confession. For, for me, I don't just need God in my life, and if you know anything about my life before Jesus, right? I mean, I don't just need God in my life. Even as your pastor, I need you. I need you, right? I need you in my life because without you, I will never find the meaning and the wholeness that my soul longs for. I will never find the fulfillment, the intention that God has for me in my life. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but has it ever occurred to you that there is not a single gift or talent that you possess that has any value outside other people? Take myself, for example. I'm not a person with a lot of talents, but one thing that I think I have a talent for is public speaking. But if you think about it, that is a lousy, lousy gift to have because I need people to make that gift work. Right? Because I have seen people walking down the street talking to themselves and it doesn't work, right? 
Uh, you know, and, and that usually happens if you go walking down Liberty or Street or uh, Liberty or State Street. And no disrespect, because again, these are men and women who've been kind of victims of systemic sin and all that, but so no disrespect there. But in fact, when you, when you go near them or talk to them, I mean, they sound a lot like preachers. They walk around talking about God and the end times and just talking to themselves. And again, no disrespect, but that is a picture of a person who merely uses their gifts and talents for themselves. If your gifts and talents is just about you, you're no different than the person who's walking uh, on uh, person on the street. If your if your te- if your intellect, if your wealth is all about you, you are wasting your life to no lesser degree than the person who's lost their mind spending their days talking to themselves because that is not the plan and purpose that God has for you. And you cannot experience the full measure of God by yourself. And if you want to experience how high and wide and deep and long the love of God is, you need to understand that you need to do it in community. And the most liberating place that you can find yourself today is when you understand that you don't stand alone. That you stand together. And in standing together, that means that we weep together, we rejoice together, we lean on one another. I don't know how many people have gone through divorces and so many other heartbreaking incidences. And, and one person even told me a month ago, right, Sung, you know what? Man, he, he, uh, he's just been through a, a major divorce and he just said, if it weren't for the people around me here at Grace, my natural instinct whenever life gets hard is to pull away because I'm an introvert. That's what I would normally do. Life is hard, I don't need community. But he said, for the first time in my life, instead I did everything that goes counter, counterintuitive to, to my soul. And, and when I was going through this, I dove into community and sung, that has been a lifesaver for me. And we were crying and hugging and all sorts of things. And if you know me, I hate crying and I hate hugging. <laughs> you cannot experience life that God intends by yourself. And that's why Nate even said, right, the thing that you will hear over and over again, life together becoming more like Jesus. And so will you decide that you are not going to do life alone? And the question that I want to leave with you this morning is this. First of all, what is God saying to you through this sermon? What is God saying to you? And more importantly, as you reflect on that, what is going to be your next step? For some, it will be just coming here on a Sunday, and that is a huge step. For others, it may be joining a community group, which is also another huge step. For others, there's just so many. God is going to guide you and lead you in, so, in your own ways. But what is the next step for you? Let's do this. Would you all stand? Let's all stand together. And as we stand, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? let me give you like 20 seconds to ponder that question. What, if anything, through this sermon has God spoken to your heart? And make it concrete. God may be bringing up a person or a situation, maybe brokenness in your life because of loneliness and isolation, and you know this is not where God wants me. He doesn't want you to leave here just feeling good. He wants you to take that next step in faith. 
So take a moment and begin to listen to God. So God, many of us come here this morning broken and empty. We have just enough of you to make sure that we're not agnostic or that we're going to heaven, but not enough of you to be anything more. And you offer us so much more through your son and through your body. God, we don't want to find ourselves in a place where we are too proud to ask for help from other people. Because that is just so humbling. And we don't want to find ourselves too busy where we can't offer help to our brothers and sisters and our mothers in our midst. And so God, would you continue to shape us to be your family, to, to live life together, to walk through it together with you in one another. And so, Jesus, we thank you for this community, this tribe, this church that we belong to, where we play such a unique role and where we don't have to stand alone. So, God, today we stand together, we sing together, we rejoice, and we worship together in your name. So, God, would you be pleased as you look down upon this family? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's join together as we close with this final song.